Hello and welcome to Talking um, uh, Jimmy Stewart. I'm Tim Vanderberg and joining me for this episode is Scott Iman, author of the best-selling book, Hank and Jim, The 50-Year Friendship of Henry Fonda and James Stewart. Scott recently talked to me by phone from his home in West Palm Beach, Florida, and we discussed the legacies of Stewart and Fonda explored in depth in his book. I hope you'll enjoy it. All right, well, you've been on a, a book tour. Uh, how has that gone so far? Oh, it's fine. It was exhausting. Book tours are just deadly. Yeah. I hate doing them, but, you know, it's fun while you're doing it because your adrenaline's pumping and all that. But uh, the reality is when you, get, when you finally stop, you have this crash because you've been going on uh, going on adrenaline. And, and it's just after that's gone, you just, you're just exhausted. You know, you're not exhausted so much while you're doing it, but it happens after it's done. Yeah, and that hit you... me like when I got home on Sunday. So are you done? Is that it for now? I'm done. Okay. I'm done, except for stuff like this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, did you have any interesting encounters with fans while you were out? Oh, God, yeah, 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 yeah. In Burbank, there was a woman who was the granddaughter of Duke Lee. Now, Duke Lee was a member of the John Ford Stock Company around World War One. Oh, wow. But he continued to work for for Ford through Ford Apache, you know? I mean, he was always in the background someplace. You could pick him up any place. I mean, because Ford was like that. He'd, if you worked for Ford and he liked you, he'd, you know, you'd work for Ford for the rest of your life. He'd stick you in the back someplace. Yeah. And, and carry you through the whole picture. And she had some great, uh, some great stories, some great stories that I wish I'd put in the book, actually, yeah. about Henry Fonda, about Fonda, you know? But that, that always happens. Every time I write a book, Someone comes up to me, uh, you know, two months after the book's published, she gives me a great story that should have been in the book. Well, I didn't I, know it, you know? Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Is there anything that uh, you, you know, thought of after the fact? Or um, maybe there was something that, you know, you you could ask somebody, given this forum, that you wouldn't have, uh, you know, been able to ask otherwise? No, no, it's just, it's just the people you didn't know existed show up, Yeah. You know? That's really what it is. You, you do you do the people, everybody you can think of, but there's always some tiny bit player or some you know teamster who has a great story that comes up to you at a signing three months after the book's published, and you think, oh God, where were you when I needed you? You know, yeah, oh, that's fascinating. That, that happens on every book without exception, without exception. So you spent three years on this book. What what's your writing process like? It depends. It depends on how much, uh, what kind of book it is. This is more of an anecdotal book. It's less of a of a uh, uh, a research book. Okay. So the first thing I did is well, okay. Now who's around? You know, well the kids are still around. Peter and Jane are around. Shirley, Henry's widow, is around. Uh, and Stuart's three kids are around. So you know, how do you get to them? Well, that's one problem. Then you figure out well, uh, how do I make that social circle that the kids weren't a part of come alive? You know, where are the oral histories? And I found a huge batch of stuff at the Library of Congress, uh, which so that was essentially a simpler version of most of my books because most of my books are six hundred page behemoths, yeah. And this was uh, three hundred ninety page. So to me, this is like you know a walk in Central Park on a pleasant Sunday afternoon. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because between the kids and uh, the Library of Congress, it gave me about seventy five percent of what I needed. Oh, that's great. So what did you learn about Hank and Jim that you didn't know before? Almost everything. Yeah. Almost everything. What uh, what brought them together, what held them together, what each 
each of them got from the other, uh, why the relationship sustained for half a century. Right, and that's that's explored in depth in the book. I wondered if you could just summarize, maybe for people who haven't read it yet, what what was that glue? What what do you think kept them together for fifty years? Well, they. I mean, people often focus on the differences between the people because that's the that's the kind of place we live in now. Yeah. You know, where political differences, nobody speaks to anybody. Sexual differences, no one speaks to anybody. It's a very divided country. These guys <clears throat> tabled the things they didn't agree on, predominantly politics, because Fonda was liberal and Stewart was very conservative. And they had one argument over politics, and they didn't want to uh, damage the relationship over ideology, so they agreed to take politics. They agreed to disagree, basically, yeah. and take politics off the table. Uh, and nobody does that now. You know, everybody gets, everybody gets a, it's a, it's a steel cage, loser leaves town deathmatch over politics. Oh, yeah, yeah. And nobody can change anybody's mind because politics are predominantly emotional rather than objective. So, uh, you know, it's uh, people just go around and around and around making the same arguments over and over again. They stop talking to each other. Yeah. But Fonda by, and Stewart, by taking politics off the table, could still relate to each other as men, as human beings, you know, because they agreed on almost everything else. They agreed about the craft. Uh, they agreed about acting. Uh, which was crucial in both their lives, especially Fonda's life. They agreed about uh, uh, an awful lot. They agreed about people. They were both loners. Uh, neither one of them wanted a lot of people in their life or had a lot of people in their life. They yeah. both kind of uh, uh, had a feline aspect to their personalities. Mm -hmm. You know, they were the cats that walked by themselves, especially Fonda. Stewart to a lesser extent, but, you know, even then as... as there was a character actor who'd worked with Fonda a couple times and went up to John Ford on The Man Who Shot Liberty Dallas and said, you know, I've worked with Fonda, I mean, I've worked with Stuart, and I can't, I can't really get to know him. And, and Ford said, you don't get to know Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart gets to know you. Mm. And that's true, yeah. you know. Uh, and Stewart's kids told me, even though they grew up in Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills, it wasn't really a movie upbringing. It wasn't a show business upbringing. The only movie people at the house were Fonda and Lou Wasserman and Bill Fry, who just died uh, last week. Oh. Uh, other than that, it, there weren't movie people at the house. You yeah. know? Uh, so they didn't have this overwhelming sense of show business in their lives. Yeah. And Fonda was very much the same way because for uh, 15, 16 years, he lived in New York and he was a New York theater actor. He didn't like movies that much. He didn't trust movies that much. Uh, so neither one of them defined their success particularly by their status in the movie industry. Hmm. So they saw that, in, 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 in terms of their craft, in terms of acting, neither one of them ever had a, uh, uh, an acting lesson. Uh, they both believed that basically what an actor has to do is learn the script backwards and forwards and respect the script, otherwise why are you doing it? And respect the other actor and look them in the eye. You know, they didn't like the method because they thought eventually it, it, it privileged the actor over the character. And they were both interested in, in explicating character rather than themselves. As a matter of fact, I don't think they wanted to explicate themselves particularly. Uh, I think acting was a way of coming to grips with themselves uh, rather than you know going through psychi psychiatric uh, analysis. You mm. know, I think that they did that through their acting. Yeah, and particularly uh, Jimmy Stewart after the war. It sounds like. Well, Stewart after the war, I mean, the war was the making of Jimmy Stewart as an actor. I mean, before the war, except for uh, the shop around the corner, 
yeah, film yeah. after film after film. And that's a function of the war because he had no not he had no anxiety or fear before the war. He never experienced those things. He experienced all those things during the war, and it filled the reservoir. And he expressed all that after the war as an actor. Yeah, beyond uh, Hank and Jim, your book tells this parallel story about their friends. Uh, you mentioned. Uh, Josh Logan, uh, Leland uh-huh. Howard, John Swope, others. Uh-huh. Which of those um, stood out to you? Was there one in particular that you were intrigued by? Well, they were all interesting guys because uh, what, what the, the similarity between them was that they all bonded young. Mm-hmm. All these, they all bonded with each other in the thirties. You know, when they were young and starving uh, in New York City. Well, Leland Hayward was in L.A., but but Swope was in uh, uh, in Princeton with uh, Stewart. And through Stewart, he, he met Fonda and, and, and became part of Fonda's inner circle as well. Uh, but they were all young when they formed their bond. And it was kind of like a, a, a battlefield. Uh, uh, it, it was like they were in some sort of World War II movie where all the guys in the unit bond together mm-hmm. because they go through the Battle of the Bulge together. Oh, yeah. these, guys went through, they get, these guys went through the Depression in New York. They went through being starving actors together. They went through being young leading men and character actors in L.A. together in Hollywood. And they became stars together, each in their respective uh, fields. Uh, Stewart and Fonda as, as, as uh, movie stars. Leland Hayward as an agent. John Swope as a photographer for Life magazine. So they all achieved eminence uh, uh, on a kind of gradually ascending scale from their, their poverty-stricken <laughs> uh, uh, young manhood in, in New York City in the early 30s. Yeah. But they all were on the same level when they met, and they all ascended to a very high level uh, in their maturity. So there was a very similarity of experience and, and age, and they, they all matured at roughly the same uh, level. So I think that was a huge bond between them, and it, that bond never lessened. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, there's been a lot written about the relationship between Jimmy and Margaret Sullivan. And in your research, I wondered if... Um, you thought this relationship was based on mutual admiration, camaraderie about the craft, uh, maybe Jimmy's gratefulness for help, you know, her helping him uh, mold mm-hmm. his career early on, or you know, this unrequited love that so many others allude to. Which was it, or a mix of all of that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was all of the above. I think she was a very exciting actress. She wasn't like any other actress. She wasn't drop dead gorgeous. Uh, she had that gorgeous husky voice, mm-hmm. but she wasn't, you know, extraordinarily beautiful, particularly. But what she did have was a quality of vulnerability and kind of piquance. And uh, Fonda, of course, married her, couldn't hold on to her. The marriage broke up in a couple of months, really. Uh, and then they divorced uh, later that year. Uh, and Stewart, she was too volatile for Stewart. Stewart was not interested in volatility. If you look at the women Stewart was involved with, from Olivia de Havilland and Ginger Rogers through his wife, Gloria, and Marlene D. Well, Marlene she could be volatile. Hmm. But I don't think she's particularly volatile in a relationship yeah. uh, through his wife, Gloria. Stewart gravitated towards stability, not volatility, and, in a woman. And uh, Sullivan was extremely volatile at all times. So I think that was a, that was something that he would observe and pine for and, and, and possibly be interested in. But I don't think it's something that he would he would actively try to settle down with because there was no settling down with Margaret Sullivan. Yeah, yeah, he, he saw that firsthand with his uh, with his friend. Oh sure. Yeah, you shatter a couple of myths in the book. Um, one is you know we've always heard that Lou Wasserman really helped Jimmy's career, basically made him rich 
uh, with right. Winchester 73, but you say that actually occurred before that with It's a Wonderful Life. I wonder if you could Absolutely. talk about that. Wasserman, Wasserman was getting percentage of the gross uh, for Stewart as soon as he got back from the war in 1946 with uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, Stewart's base salary on that picture was $175,000, but he ended up with something like $350,000. Oh. Uh, and the picture ended up losing just about that much because he had a percentage of the gross. Uh, and so he was getting a percentage of the gross from the time he got back from Hollywood, uh, from the war. Whereas Fonda was much less interested in money. Stewart was interested in money and, and became probably the wealthiest actor of his generation, really. Mm -hmm. uh, but Fonda was comparatively uninterested in money. Fonda was much more focused on the work. And he, you know, even into the 60s, his price for a picture would be $100,000, $125,000. And Jimmy Stewart wouldn't have gotten off the couch for $100,000. <laughs> so they had very different attitudes about uh, 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 remuneration in the yeah. business. Yeah. Yeah. An another myth um, you, know, you hear, and I wondered if this is like along the lines of print the legend, uh, Jimmy's final words, you know, basically his deathbed words that we had always heard was, I'm going to be with Gloria now. Uh, your book says his he actually his last and maybe that was just to his family, uh, maybe maybe we need to be specific like who he said what to who. But you say his uh -huh. his final word was Anne, his uh -huh. uh, his housekeeper his who was housekeeper. helping out. Right, yeah, right, right. yeah. And what, well, he felt he felt his heart. You know, his, he was having a heart attack basically, mm. and you know he uh, he called out for the person that was there every day all day. Yeah, which is perfectly natural to do. It's it's a it's a chemical reaction. It's not a it's not a considered reaction. It's it's an it's a instinctive reaction. Yeah, you call for the person who's there all the time. Sure, which is what he did. But by the time she got there, he was gone. Oh wow! Yeah, reading the book after a while, I started to feel sorry for Henry Fonda, given his hardships, his emotional state, and uh, then I was glad to learn that his life really turned around uh, with his marriage to Shirley. It really changed oh. him. Um, what were your thoughts about that? And did. Jimmy ever uh, take notice of that? Did he comment along those lines? Yeah, uh, uh, Stuart and Gloria both liked Shirley. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, he Fonda kept marrying women who had, with the exception of his third wife, his first wife, uh, his his second wife. They all had they all kind of independent careers. His second wife was wealthy. His first wife was an actress. His third wife was a young girl who had no particular uh, world experience. His fourth wife was an Italian countess. Mm -hmm. And they all had their own uh, agendas, you know. And as Brooke Hayward, you know, uh, told me, you don't want to marry an actress. I mean, that's just foolish if you're an actor because there's, only, there's not enough oxygen in the room for two actors in one house. Yeah. So, and Fonda did that a couple times. Uh, but with Shirley... He married someone who, who would basically take care of him, you know, and, and he was older by that. He was in his 60s at that point. And uh, they had this perfect nurture, even though Shirley was about 30 years younger than he was. They had this perfect nurturing relationship, and she wouldn't let him mope, and she'd get him up off the couch, and she wouldn't let him get depressed, and she traveled with him to all the locations, which some of his other wives had done. You know, they all had, mm. all had their own agendas, yeah. and they all wanted to do what they wanted to do. But Shirley wanted to, do, wanted to make Hank comfortable and make Hank uh, uh, feel, uh, uh, she domesticated him, basically. And he 
never wanted to be domesticated before, but he, he was willing to accept it with Shirley because he was older and mellower. Hmm. Well, marginally mellower. Yeah. <laughs> as mellow as he got. As mellow as he was going to get. <laughs> right. So, Fonda has the last word in your book uh, in a letter to John Swope's widow, Dorothy McGuire. Yeah. And it's a beautiful letter, a fitting conclusion to the story, I thought. Uh, what were your thoughts when you made the decision to end the book this way? Well, Fonda's, Fonda's persona, as well as his personality, was kind of unyielding. He was flinty, he was tough, and that was not acting, that was who he was, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had issues with emotional revelation. He wouldn't, uh, he, he, he just kind of held himself aloof from uh, most people, uh, and even from his children on occasion. Uh, they couldn't get much out of him. The ball didn't back up rocketing back over the net with Fonda. Hmm. Uh, and I liked the fact that, because uh, John Swope never asked anything from Fonda, they met uh, uh, as equals, and Swope respected Fonda as an artist, and Fonda respected Swope as an artist in their different uh, different uh, different skills. Uh, and that in that letter, after Swope died, he wrote this letter to Dorothy Bumeier, where he comes right and says, I love John. I just loved him. He made my life better. He made it more positive. I never left John without feeling better, you know, for having been yeah. with him. And the sincerity and the plain spokenness of that letter seemed to indicate to me that at the end of his life, and it was only written a few years before Fonda died, mm-hmm. but at the end of his life he'd come to some self-awareness about himself and about the perils of withholding emotion from the people that you love. Yeah. So I decided, I, I decided that would be the perfect ending. Yeah, that's great. Um, what do you think you would have asked either Jimmy or Hank if you'd had the opportunity? Oh, I probably would have asked Fonda about John Ford. Yeah? <laughs> because I'm fascinated by Ford, and Ford is endlessly interesting. And Fonda found him endlessly interesting. I always, for instance, I always wondered, uh, in My Darling Clementine, that little scene where he, he, he leans back on the fence post and mm-hmm. does this little dance yeah. on the fence post. Was I mean, that's not the sort of thing that's in the script. But was it Fonda or was it Ford? And I've always wondered about that, and I could never find out, you know, none of the Ford Fonda interviews I could find ever talked about it. Yeah. But in the Library of Congress, I found this interview where Fonda talked that Ford threw it at him just before he rolled camera, and that he just did it basically with 10 seconds notice, you know? Uh-huh. And that he said that that was the sort of thing Ford did. He expected you to be able to extrapolate on things he threw out at you just before he rolled. And he said, and then Fonda said, there was nobody like him. As difficult as he could be and as perverse as he could be, there was no one like him. Mm-hmm. You know? And I just thought that was such a, uh, a fitting uh, epitaph for that difficult relationship. Well, everybody had a difficult relationship. They had a relationship with John Ford. It was not smooth because he was a, a thorny guy. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Fonda took all the, all the pain and all the difficulty and all the erratic behavior. And, and at the end of the day, look at the movies. You know, they're still looking at the movies 80, 90 years later, and they're still great movies. He's the uh, he's the Homer of the American movie industry. Yeah. Uh, you can't you can't you can't get away from John Ford if you're going to be serious about American movies. And Fonda knew that, and he realized that it came out of Ford. It didn't come out of Daryl Zanuck. It didn't come out of the studio. It didn't come out of the script. It came out of Ford. Yeah, and, and Jimmy worked with him later on. He kind of came late to the party. He um, came late to the party after uh, uh, Ford was just about to start the downhill slide. Yeah. And he made the, the man who 
Photoshop of Liberty Valance was their first picture, which is a great movie. I think it's Ford's last great movie. And then uh, they liked each other a lot, and then he did Two Road Together with Ford, which I don't like much, and Cheyenne Autumn, which I don't like much. But, uh, yeah, he, 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 helped prop, he helped prop up Ford uh, in the last stages of his career. Anything you would have asked Jimmy Stewart if you'd had the opportunity? Yeah, I would have asked him about Lubitsch. He never talked much about Lubitsch. Mm. People tended to ask him about Capra, and they tended to ask him about Ford and Hitchcock. Yeah. But he never, you know, nobody really asked about Lubitsch, but I think uh, The Shop Around the Corner is one of the few perfect movies ever made. Uh-huh. Just, it's, just, it's just like watching a beautiful ice skater uh, do, uh, do a complicated routine. It's elegant, and it it's, uh, has clarity, and it's musical, and it's moving, and it's everything it needs to be. And it's a perfect movie. And, uh, but he, nobody ever really pressed him about how Lubitsch worked the actors to get those performances uh, in that script. And it was shot quickly. It was made in 30 days. And I've always wondered, uh, I always wanted to ask Stuart about the making of The Shopper on the Court. Mm. Yeah, it does get overshadowed by all the other work. Yeah, because uh, it's a quiet movie, yeah. you know, as opposed to the, the Sturm and Drang of Vertigo or Window, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But The Shop Around the Corner is all nuance. It's completely nuance. Mm. And Stewart uh, uh, matches up to what Lubitsch needs him to do without any sense of strain. So what about Hank and Jim's work do you think will make them stand the test of time? Well, they've already stood the test of time. They've been dead a long time. Yeah. And people are still looking at their pictures. Uh... It's all about making great pictures, you know? I mean, nobody was a bigger star in the 30s and 40s than Clark Gable. But Clark Gable, nobody talks about Clark Gable anymore, really, because he only made two great pictures. He made God the Wind, uh, and he made it happen one night. And that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, Misfits, maybe, but the Misfits was never a particularly popular picture, and it's never been a particularly popular picture. So, but the pic- he only made two pictures that anybody really paid the attention to because Clark Gable was a company man, you know? Yeah. He did what MGM put in front of him, and, and he went off and did it, and then went back to the ranch. Uh, he, he wasn't out there fighting for better scripts. Uh, if you look at Fonda's career, and if you look at Stewart's career, there's a very high batting average. They're, they just didn't make two really good pictures. They made a dozen really good pictures, and then there's six or eight really good pictures below that on a second tier. Oh, yeah. So there's a body of work that has to be reckoned with, as opposed to someone like Clark Gable or Tyrone Power, who were stuck in a kind of assembly line mentality and couldn't break out. Mm. Basically, it's basically about making quality pictures that transcend their own generation, which both Fonda and Stewart did. Yeah, on the uh, second tier that you talked about, are there underrated films that stand out to you? Like, what do you what do you just champion that you can't understand? Well, well with people... Stewart, I mean, I, I I don't think it's a great picture. But it's an interesting picture, and it, it, uh, there's a couple late Stewart pictures that I think are excellent. Flight of the Phoenix, I mm-hmm. think, is a great movie. It was not a particular hit. I don't think it made a dime. Uh, but it holds up beautifully. It's, a, it's an excellent Robert Aldrich movie, and Stewart uh, is absolutely convincing because he's a pilot. Of course, he was always a sucker for any movie that involved airplanes. Mm-hmm. You know, sign him up. He'd, he'd be there. Uh, <laughs> just wave it in front of his face, and he'd sign the contract. <laughs> yeah. uh, movie about airplanes? I'm there. Uh, so- and uh, there's a little movie, Andrew, probably the best movie Andrew McLaughlin ever made called Fool's Parade, where Stewart plays a one-eyed parolee from a West Virginia prison. It was written by, it was based on a novel by Davis Grubb, who wrote Night of the Hunter. And yeah. it's got some of that same Southern Gothic 
And it's a nice little picture. And again, it didn't do 10 cents because Stuart was pushing 70 at that point, and there aren't any 70-year-old movie stars. You know, the audience isn't interested in 70-year-old movie stars. They're interested in 30-year-old movie stars. Yeah. Uh, and so nobody saw it. But it's a really nice little picture. And Flight of the Phoenix, I think, is a great picture. Uh, with Fonda, there are pictures he made that no one saw, like Hitchcock's The Wrong Man, which is a magnificent movie, uh, but it's one of the only Hitchcock pictures that doesn't fit into the Hitchcock niche because it's a one-off. It's, it's a kind of docudrama shot in a film noir style. And it's a true story, and it's beautiful, and Fonda loved it, and Fonda loved very few movies that he was in. Hmm. You can count them on two hands that he had any use for at all. But he thought The Wrong Man was excellent, but nobody went in 1957. And, of course, 12 Angry Men, which is the only movie he produced, uh, which was rehearsed for two weeks, shot in three weeks, cost $350,000, and still lost money. Yeah. But it, made, it, it found its audience when it went on television in the 60s, and it's never stopped playing since. You know, And I think it's one, a beautiful performance by Fonda, and it's gorgeously directed by Sidney Lumet. And, uh, uh, you know, eventually it put a lot of money in his pocket, but not in 1957. But he held on to his, he held on to his ownership of the picture, and, and by the 70s it was pumping a considerable amount of money into his, into his pocket, and it's considered to pump out a considerable amount of money ever since. So there, there are these pictures that flew beneath the radar in both their lives that ended up uh, 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 adding to the luster. They weren't commercial hits, but they were just quality pictures, you know, that spoke to their uh, good taste in scripts. Um, uh, your, your book is filled with uh, information like this, and I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you so much for taking time to visit with us about it. Uh, what's your next project? I don't know yet. Yeah. I'm circling. You know, we're talking. I'll, I'm going to come to a decision by January or so. Okay. I want to get back to work uh, yeah. now that the uh, the touring is done and I can focus again on what I want to do next. Uh, I'm not sure. I've got one or two possibilities, uh, actually three possibilities. I'm, I'm just circling, and the circles are getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, I really enjoyed Thanks talking with you. You bet. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you'll read Scott's book, The title is Hank and Jim, The 50-Year Friendship of Henry Fonda and James Stewart. It's a privilege for me to work on this project for the Jimmy Stewart Museum in Jimmy's hometown of Indiana, Pennsylvania. I hope you'll make plans to visit. For more information, visit jimmy.org. If you found us on iTunes and have enjoyed what you've heard, please leave us a review as it helps us spread the word about the museum. And feel free to email me with your thoughts or ideas for the podcast at podcast at jimmy.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon.